welcome to another Voices for Scotland um, podcast. We are joined by a special guest today, um, and 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 Skegel's main island is speaking for about twenty minutes. Um, so we're joined by Simon Duffy. So Simon, thanks for joining us today. Um, you're you're going to be speaking to us about universal base, basic income, but we'll kind of get onto that in a minute. But um, if people's listening to this and might have heard you before, but might not, or you know whatever, can you just give us a wee quick bio of, of who you are and uh, where you're from and, and stuff? I'll try to, Michael. I warn you, sometimes when I do this, it can go on for five minutes and the podcast will be finished, so I'll try to be really brief. Um, so, yeah, so my name's Simon Duffy. Um, my kind of, I kind of have two job titles at the moment. I'm a director of the Centre for Welfare Reform, which is a think tank based in Sheffield in the north of England. Um, but I'm also president of Citizen Network, which is a global co-op, which is there to advance citizenship for everyone. And uh, but my life is a lot of my life has been focused on um, trying to change the social care system. So from 1990 through to 2009, that was my main obsession. And a lot of it was actually done in Scotland. So I set up an organization called Inclusion Glasgow, and I worked with Scottish local authorities to start developing systems where people with disabilities had more control over their support. But in 2009, I set up this, this think tank, really, to try and encourage people to think that the welfare state's a brilliant thing. But there's no reason why the people who designed it in 1945 got everything right. So why don't we keep improving it? Which is not the normal way people use the word welfare reform, strangely. So what a lot of people use the word welfare reform to try and disguise the fact that they're cutting or attacking the welfare state. I'm trying to get people to think that welfare reform might mean improve the welfare state. It sometimes feels like a lonely task. So, um, so there you go. That that wasn't five minutes, but there you go. I'm I'm not I'm not timing you so so that's good. So because I can go on for ages as as Alan would fight for that. I, I think. Um. So, um. Well, now going to speak about UBI. So as I say, a lot of people might be listening to this and say, "Oh yeah, what's UBI?" So, give us a wee quick uh, overview of it, and then we'll we'll kind of getting to the nuts and bolts of it? Sure. So UBI stands for Universal Basic Income. Um, sometimes people just talk about basic income, um, and sometimes there are other words for it, citizen's income. I think the Pope talks about it as a universal income or a universal wage, I think the Pope says. Pope is one of the backers of UBI. I don't know whether that pleases you or not. Um, but the the idea is fundamentally really simple. It's to say that every society needs uh, some system of social security, income security in the modern world. Historically, when people had land and it was distributed differently, then maybe we didn't need this. But in the modern world, people are basically born poor. Like if you, unless you're very lucky, you don't have assets, you don't have an income, you're born with kind of nothing. And, um, so actually, the only way we can secure each other's well-being 
provide each other with security is if we say, right, let's make sure everybody has a basic minimum just to start with. And that basic minimum is the basic income. Um, now, that is not how our current social security system works. So the battle is to try and change and move away from the current system towards something where everybody gets that basic minimum. Is that? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if you want to come in at this point, Alan. Don't worry, I'll let you speak. <laughs> no, no, absolutely no. I mean, um, it's, it's, it's really interesting because it's something that's um, sort of, it, well, obviously we're, we're tomorrow people go to the polls and vote in the in the Scottish election and it's something when people haven't been talking about independence universal basic income has been uh, been on, on the cards um and you know there's there's lots of lots of questions that, that I've got I don't know if we, we could fit um, them into into 20 minutes but I think one maybe just to the, the basic uh, principles of it is that you know in, in society at the moment there is a big gap between rich and poor and, and I, in fact, a widening gap between rich and poor. Um, how does universal basic income um, address that that issue, or, or does it? it? It does, in my opinion. I mean, I guess a lot of this is opinion because <clears throat> basic income is an idea that's gaining popularity around the world. But although there are, have been some very successful experiments, and there are a few places three very small places that have something like basic income with very good effects. Really, we're talking about something that's um, more about theory than practice. So I think there is good evidence to suggest what I'm going to say is true. I think there's um, all sorts of uh, good arguments and logic behind it, but there's no point pretending that this is just obvious easy, we can just borrow what they're doing in France or Japan or somewhere else. No, what Scotland is actually leading the way in these discussions. Scotland's proposals for piloting basic income are um, probably more advanced than any other country around the world. Um, but it is definitely still a point where people are uncertain, even, even its fans. And I'm definitely on a scale of 1 to 10. I'm up at 9.5, 10. Uh, but, you know, that the, even the people who support it would have to recognise there are many unanswered questions. It's a, it's a radical proposal for change. It's the equivalent, I think, very closely aligned to the creation of the NHS. Nobody ever done that before. And just at that moment, some doctors and, and socialists, if I can say that word on this podcast, had been arguing yeah. for the NHS for... Uh, about 20 years, like 17 years, I think, since uh, before it happened. And uh, and then when it did happen, you know, we know that it's it's worked and it's it's lasted despite many attacks and problems. So it's but it's that kind of change. It's a big change in mentality and practice. Yeah, and I, I suppose. Uh, so with anything like this, that, you know, is, is a seismic change in the you know, the way that society functions, the way that welfare functions, there are, are undoubtedly going to be criticisms of it as well. Um, and one of the criticisms would be is, you know, if there's somebody who's got a decent wage and earns decent money, why should they get money from the state? Yeah, so this is the, this is the targeting concept. So the current benefit system is based on the assumption we've only got so much money to redistribute, so we've got to target it. So we'll, we target it at the poorest, we target it at people with no savings, we target, 
target it on people who who are alone, and then all these principles are basically targeting principles built into the system. It's based on a false premise, of course, which is that we've only got so much money to redistribute. As a community, we can redistribute what we choose to redistribute, and the NHS shows how it, we we get much better at redistributing basically if we create a universal platform first. If we say everybody benefits, everybody gets this income, but then yeah, we have to pay for it, and it comes out of the taxation system. All again, there's a complex debate about different options here, but I'm a sim- simple-minded guy at heart. <laughs> it seems to me, basically, you know, in an unequal society, you take it from the wealthy. In fact, basic income, it's almost built into its design. It lifts everybody's income from the bottom, but it takes the money, basically, from people above the mean, mean income. And mean is important here. Mean doesn't mean middle. It means the average of all incomes. That tends to be basically the top 10 to 15%. So in, in, a, in a basic income system built on taxation, what you can expect to see is uh, everybody gets something, so everybody benefits in one level, but actually the whole system is redistributive around the, the poorest 85% get richer and the top 15% get poorer. And... Yeah, it involves a different kind of tax system, actually. That's the kind of, ultimately, it's basically making the tax system fairer. Do you know, Alan, at the moment, if you look at people's earnings and how much tax they pay, the poorest 10% pay 50% of their income in taxes. The top 10% pay 30, 32% of their income in taxes. Is that fair? It's, it's, it's deeply unfair. It's deeply unfair. And it actually leads me on to the next thing I was going to ask you because I, it doesn't take much research to, to see the benefits of universal basic income. Um, but what I've, I've not quite managed to get my head around is, is can, can universal basic income work with the economic system in which we operate? Um, Essentially, you know, just back to your your, your point there about about taxation, um, and about uh, I suppose like a, a capitalist society where large corporations accumulate wealth, um, with with the introduction of universal basic income, would there have to be a transition? Um, Toward, you know, to, you know, there would have, it would be a fairer have to you'd have to have a fairer tax system, and what other sort of economic changes do you think would have to happen uh, a sort of national level to to get the the, the the most benefit out of universal basic income? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think, I mean, what I would say is that although I think what you say is true, and this is partially this kind of fear about well, we're living in a capitalist society. Won't in a way the capitalist society unravel what you try to do? Again, you know the same could be said of um, the NHS or anything else, free education, pensions, anything we value. Um, the trying to transform this kind of society we're in, unless you believe bloody revolution and, and state power is the way, as t- tested in Russia and China, or I don't think that successfully. The only way I can see reforming society is is a combination of building the attractive features you want in society and then kind of working out 
crudely speaking, how you pay for them. So I don't see that as a problem. I just see that as the, the reality of the world we're in. And in that world, we have to ask ourselves, is the system of social security that we've created really helping us or is it hindering us? One of the ways the current system hinders us, and, and so one of the benefits of the change, is that in a way, the poor, people who rely on the system, although in, what we know about this is often very distorted by the media, so we have a very poor grasp of what's really going on, but they're, they're really treated as other. Other people rely on benefits. Yeah, And so actually when it comes around to political debates, which are, of course, critical in a democratic society, it's very easy for politicians to get away with basically allowing benefit levels to sink and sink, to treat that as basically it's the poor's fault that they're poor. You know, if only they'd worked harder. A whole series of lies have fed into our understanding of this. Um, and then to justify uh, playing around with the tax system so that it benefits not just uh, the be better off, but also often swing voters and people that they're trying to target. So the whole, at the moment, an economy and politics intermesh, don't they? It's not about an economy as a pure thing. It's the combination of, of human beings as political actors engaging with economic systems and trying to wrestle them into some kind of fairness. If you start to say, well, everybody gets something out of this new system, like with the NHS, you get one big political benefit. Everybody benefits. <laughs> like, so suddenly the poor ain't the other. Even the millionaire can see on their, I mean, it might be lost on their state bank statements, but they will be able to see their basic income come in. When they say, what am I paying taxes for? They'll see their basic income coming in. Yeah. So it, it is, a, I think, very important part of the change we need to make. Um, it isn't the only change we need to make. It, there are broader questions about how we move our economy away from a kind of massive reliance on pointless consumption. Um, you know, we, we, we're destroying the planet in the name of the economy. How do we get out of that cycle? We will still need to make sure everybody's economic well-being is taken care of. So we will still need a system of redistribution or a basic income system. But if we guarantee that, maybe we can get people away from this frenzied attempt to, to achieve growth at any cost, a meaningless concept of growth. Growth when we burn forests. Yeah. Growth when we poison the sky. Growth when we create carbon dioxide. You know what I mean? That, yeah. and that the economy is also a function of our ecology. And at the moment, the relationship is poisonous. So we need to move away from that. We need to rediscover democracy. We need people, people to be actually able to take part in the political process. At the moment, only the rich can do that. A basic income guarantees people's ability to contribute as citizens, to play their part in democratic life, perhaps to introduce a bit more democracy into ordinary life. You know, why do we leave all the decisions to Holyrood or to Westminster, where many of those decisions could be made in local communities? At the moment, you can't afford to spend time doing that because you're too busy working. You've probably got two, if you're at a lower income, you've got two or three jobs and everybody in your household is working. You don't have time. You don't have time to get involved in your community life. This is terrible state of affairs in the modern world. We won't solve our problems 
by relying on rich, powerful individuals to solve them for them. They are the problem, really. <laughs> That's exactly what I was going to say, actually, there. Um, very often the, the, the cause of the problems. But to me, from what you're saying, it sounds like universal basic income is a really key component of um, a, you know the, the the future direction of society in general. I think I think we are at a time or we're at a time of great change. The recognition of the um, environmental crisis, the climate crisis that we're facing, and the need to act. Um, we're getting towards um, a period of recovery from coronavirus, uh, from the pandemic, um, which has the potential to see whole scale change of society. And it sounds to me like universal basic income could be a really, really, really key component of that, that changing landscape and changing future. That, that's very much how I see it, Alan. Yes. I mean, my, I mean, Citizen Network that Michael's involved in is this global movement to advance the idea that, you know, human beings at their best are citizens. Um, that means that people with rights, a right to a basic income, but it also means that people with responsibilities and gifts, they're the people who can make the world a better place. It's ordinary people acting out of the best of themselves that will make the world a better place. It's, it's, it recognizing all the different gifts that people bring to the world that's the way forward. But we can't do that in the current economic system because people are just locked into kind of passivity through fear. People are in jobs they hate or they're in bullshit jobs or they're in jobs that they might love but are often very damaging in their externalities, in the stuff that actually happens because of them. They're not... We're not taking care of each other right. We're not taking care of the world right. How do we change? Well, you know, it's, it's very hard to do that when your basic ability to live from day to day feels like it's under threat. So, yeah, basic income is a, is a radical change. And at its heart, the debate often oscillates around people who think that work, as it's currently defined, Work, paid work, having a well-paid salary, being in the most powerful job is the right way to value human beings. And advocates of basic income are broadly speaking people who think, no, it's just, it's just a broken scale of values. It's not the right way to think about human beings. So the work of a mother or a father taking care of their child, which is never paid for, is the most valuable work, I would argue, <laughs> because you're preparing the next generation. Nobody's paying for that, but it's much more important than Boris Johnson or any idiot in a suit taking down their million-pound salary. Yeah. They're not, you know, there's no relationship between real human value and the paid stuff where people can kind of screw the system and play the system to get higher and higher cut of it. That's not real value. Uh, you know, and, and if you look at the, the care sector as the perfect example of that, where people are doing these incredibly demanding and emotionally taxing jobs and getting paid a pittance for it, whereas, you know, those suits that you talk of are doing worthless jobs and taking home millions and millions of pounds. Yeah. Um, but the, the just the last couple of things for me before I hand, you, hand back to Michael. Um, I think it's when we ha when you discuss issues like this, um, issues that can have 
an impact upon society. I think it's easy to talk about them often in the, in the abstract. Um, but I think, and you, and you obviously have to do that, but from an individual point of view, you know, from, you know, people that have had experience of poverty, um, I think something like universal basic income is, it's not just about, uh, or the security that it brings can have an incredibly important um, impact upon mental health as well. Um, for people to go day to day, week to week, month to month, worrying about putting food on the table, worrying about how they're going to heat their home, worrying about if they're going to be able to keep their home. These are real, real issues. And um, the, the, the physical and mental impact that has upon people, it, you know, cannot be underestimated, the anxiety that, that induces and everything. So I think it's, I think that's a really point I just wanted to make because I think it's, it's very easy to talk about an abstract when this actually does have a, have a real impact on real people yeah. um, across the country. But the, the last point I just wanted to, to bring up just now was obviously this is River Voices for Scotland, uh, independence campaigning organization i'm just going back to what i said earlier but that's been brought up in, in in the election campaign would would the introduction of universal basic income be possible in the next parliament in 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 a in a, in a scotland as, as part of the union or um does does this have to does, does, or would independence make it easier? I, you know, it's a it's a it's not maybe not an easy question to answer because there's a lot of hypotheticals there. But is it would it be possible within the, the current agreement as Scotland a part of the union, or would it be easier as an independent country? Well, let me say this: in 2013, I think a, a Scottish uh, colleague and friend of me, uh, mine, John Dalrymple, and I wrote a paper called "Let's Scrap the DWP." It was pitched ahead of the referendum and we argued that, you know, one of the reasons Scotland should choose independence is that it would allow itself to free itself from the constraints of um, the Westminster system and the, you know, the, the DWP, the Department of Work and Pensions and the benefit system and universal credit has all been imposed on Scotland by Ian Duncan Smith, by ideology and politicians in power that has got no democratic mandate in Scotland. And obviously, if Scotland uh, was independent or had a much greater degree of devolved powers, then it could radically change those things. Um, I, I, I mean, I'm not a unionist. I mean, I'm rather tempted by the Northern Independence Party myself. I mean, I'd quite like to separate from England, the north of England, or what we call Northumbria now. Yeah. Um, I don't, you know, but that's because our... The whole of the UK suffers from the concentration of power in London um, and the kind of ideological dominance of a small number of people. So, yeah, I, I, I don't, I think independence will clearly create an opportunity for the basic income movement. Um, actually, what's interesting, however, is that in Scotland now, all political parties, except the Conservative Party, support the idea of at least testing basic income. So there's a kind of movement for basic income happening even within unionist parties. The Liberal Democrats have adopted across the whole of the UK a pro-UBI stance. Labour is a little bit more confused, but uh, Scottish Labour and Welsh Labour are clearly pro-UBI. 
So it's not clear just whatever my feelings about the union are, it's not clear that you need to leave the union to do it. Having said that, you know, if, you know, you'll have to enter into some kind of renegotiation with Westminster to do it. Um, So uh, it's, yeah, independence-ness, the direction towards independence is will provide the platform for change. Mm. I suppose for me, it's, I mean, obviously, but we've been working together for a few years now on on all different kind of projects of Citizens Network, it's just one of them. But I wanted to ask, um, when, when I was reading the notes for the for the podcast or doing my homework, as I was saying to you before I started get recording today, um, you know, basic income would offer people a better quality of life, would you say, in terms of health and education at the moment? Because, as you were saying earlier on, and throughout the interview that, that you've been saying, it's not it's not very kind of like healthy at the moment. People are stuck in a, in a kind of rut and what I would call a, a kind of bubble. And, and because of university basic income, we want people to kind of like bust that bubble, as it were, and see, and, and look at, save the box, you know, and, and this would give you a better quality of life than, the, than people's thought at the moment in terms of the like food banks and school banks and all these kind of uh, poverty at the moment as well. Yeah, absolutely, Michael. I mean, Alan, Alan mentioned mental health. I mean, there's loads of evidence that economic insecurity is vicious on mental health. But there's loads of evidence also that physical health improves with basic income. People just healthier human beings. Education levels improve. Strangely, people uh, actually tend to work more, but in work that they value. So, uh, it, you know, this is one actually basic income, curiously, even improves incentives to work. Um, but actually, people are working hard anyway. So it doesn't lead to a radical change in the amount of work. But what it does lead to is a change in the quality of the work. People do things they value. It leads to a change in trust, interestingly. In the recent Finnish experiment, they measured people's sense of trust in society. And being trusted with a basic income seemed to lead to people feeling that there was more trust in them and in society as a whole. So it improves the quality of our kind of social life. There's not really any variable that's been measured that there isn't a a positive outcome on some of the experiments. And these experiments are not just recent. They go back certainly to the 1960s, some of the earliest. Um, But, yeah, we just haven't yet managed to get that political breakthrough there was a lot of interest in basic income in the 1970s, and then it all got swallowed up by the shift to this new, what's called neoliberal or highly economic way of looking at everything, and, and that it lost its moment, really. But it's coming back. It's coming back. And uh, the UBI Lab Network, we've now got 40 uh, labs across not just England, Wales, uh, and globally. There's like UBI Lab Iceland now. And then we're working with uh, our friends in Scotland as well. So there's this growing interconnected movement for this stuff. 
Um, it's having an impact in Korea, in Japan, in South Africa, uh, in America, in Canada, all over the world. People are testing this stuff out. Um, governments are starting to shift. The worlds are changing. I think um, I'm. I'm not sure the UK is going to lead the way. Scotland might, but we we are we are locked in possibly one of the most right wing regimes in the world at the moment. But change is coming. I was going to say as well that the final question for me, and obviously I can't do the whole interview without speaking about COVID, because uh, I've been interviewing people for the past year, and obviously I managed to fit the fit the word COVID into into a question. But I suppose like um, out out with like the work that I do for Voices and and also my journalism work as well, I'm a kind of big disability key campaigner, as you know, Simon. And I've been using um, kind of like some meetings that I go to about to say that, you know, n- nobody asked for this horrible virus to come uh, like, like COVID, but it's here. We've got to live with it at the moment. But what the point that I'm trying to make is, and I, I suppose UBI, would, uh, Universal Basic Income, would fit into it as well. Is we can't go back to the way it was especially when it comes to people with disabilities, whether that could be learning physically. Uh, I mentioned it earlier about mental health as well. And also people's mental health would be affected because that they're not getting to see any of the family members or, or working from home. So, I, you know, I, I don't think we can afford to go back the way. I think we can afford to go miles away from that. And, I suppose it's our chance now to get a better to get a better system for everyone. Because in my opinion, only in my world, if we don't get it right now, we'll never get it right. I, I don't know if you would agree on that point, but you know. Um yeah, I don't know, but the battle for justice is a long one and it's intimately connected to democracy. Like you don't find societies that are fair and equal without finding societies with a high level of democracy. And, and the UK has got a very poor level of democracy. We're not really a democratic society in any meaningful sense. So I'm not quite sure I want to commit to what <laughs> we've only got now, because I think we've got a long road ahead of us, really. I mean, I think that Scotland's got a path charted out for it at the moment. Um, you know, to me as a, as a northerner, it seems like Scotland, you'll get there with a bit of luck, a fair wind, unless something else happens. And, and you'd have to, you'd certainly, Scots would have to be promised a much different kind of deal from the United Kingdom as a whole to the one we've currently got to, I think, to change course from a kind of increasing support for independence. But even with uh, that, the wind of independence in your sails, you've got many years ahead of you. To, to, to win that battle and then to figure out what you do with it, I guess. And if you think about country, the country of Northumbria, where I am, we have decades to figure that out because, you know, the North, if you think Scotland's been screwed, I'm sorry, the North of England's been way more screwed because we've got, we've not got, we've not got any power at all, any power at all. Um, and we've, economically gone through in many degrees our economy the economy of yorkshire where i live 
is equivalent to, in what they call GDP per capita, to the economy of Lithuania. Lithuania went through 40 years of colonial oppression by the USSR. Yorkshire was where the Industrial Revolution was born, right? So how have we got to that stage? By We've got to that stage by the destruction of the economy and the politics of Yorkshire and north of England by London. And we're not going to quickly reverse that. You know, it's taken a couple of hundred years to do that, arguably longer, uh, but it's accelerated in the last 70 years. Um, and we've only just begun. So I don't know. I won't live to see justice in my day. I just try to make the best, best stab at helping on the journey, Michael. And COVID will help and has helped. And it's galvanized people. Like the UBI Lab Network, we found we've got, we can tap into people's energy during this period. And it's proven the economic point that actually in the, we need to make sure everybody's got an income as a starting point for everything else. And that's basically what they had to do during COVID. So it's proven one of the economic points for the basic income campaign. And we've got tons of politicians across the political spectrum now supporting basic income. So that's all very encouraging. But even with that encouragement, there's some long yards in this game yet. Okay, well, uh, there's a lot for people to take in there, but thanks for joining us, Simon. That was very interesting. Um, I, I don't know if you want to add anything else to the conversation, Alan, or tell us what events that you've got coming up for Scotland. No, that, that was that was really, really interesting. Um, thanks so much, Simon. And I'm sure people will, will, when they listen, will get a lot from that. So thanks again. But no, um, nothing else really, just to, you know, keep in touch with us at, on social media and, and all the rest of it. And you can find us online. <laughs> yeah, the, the website voicesforscotland.scot and uh, on Twitter, because everybody's on Twitter now, um, Voices for Scott, and uh, we'll see you soon here on Voices for Scotland. Thank you.